Audio Podcast Network. Welcome to the true crime podcast you can binge on your lunch break. My name is Joy. I am a school librarian, obsessive researcher, and lifelong true crime nerd. Each week, I'll be bringing you a new case to dissect. We'll focus on the facts, giving exposure to some of the lesser known stories in the true crime world. You never know what you might learn. This is Bite Size Crime. Welcome back to Bite Size Crime. As you might have noticed, this episode is slightly longer than usual. Definitely not bite-sized. A few weeks ago, I got an email from Jennifer Ross, the niece of Melissa Griggs, whose case I covered way back in episode 6. Melissa's story has stuck with me over the past two years. It's one of those unsolved cases that keeps you up at night. When I saw Jennifer's message, I knew that I wanted to talk to her about the case. We had such a fantastic conversation about Melissa and the investigation and about our own fascination with true crime. Believe it or not, our conversation was even longer than what you'll hear today. I really did try to cut it down, but it was just too good. Jennifer has been working on her aunt's case for over a decade, and she is as dedicated as they come. I know you'll like her as much as I do. Because I covered Melissa's case so long ago, I decided to replay the episode for you first as a refresher. Then we'll jump into my conversation with Jennifer. Also, we do discuss the case of Crystal Bislanovich quite a bit, since it is connected to Melissa's case, so I've linked to Crystal's episode in the show notes if you want to go back and listen to that one as well. And a quick disclaimer, we do discuss sensitive topics, so please take care while listening. Lastly, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has listened and supported the podcast over the last 100 episodes. I am so grateful for the opportunity to share these cases with you, and I appreciate your support more than I can say. Now, on to episode 100. Welcome back to Bite-Sized Crime. This week's case is one that I came across while researching the story of Crystal Baslanowicz for last week's episode. As I dug into Crystal's story, I saw the same name mentioned a handful of times. Melissa Griggs, a sex worker who had been murdered just weeks before Crystal. Although police said they were looking at a possible connection between the cases, it was obvious that the two had not received the same attention from investigators or the media. Other than their ages, Crystal and Melissa lived incredibly similar lives and sadly died in similarly tragic ways. So why did Crystal's case get the full power of the Salt Lake City Police Department for decades while Melissa's case seemed to get the bare minimum? As I turned my attention to Melissa's case, I realized that there was very little information available from local or national news sources. However, I soon discovered several interviews with Jennifer Ross, Melissa's niece. Decades after Melissa's murder, Jennifer decided to start her own investigation and has been fighting to bring attention to her aunt's case. Most of the information I gathered is from these interviews and from the police reports that Jennifer was able to access. So what happened to Melissa? How did she end up a footnote in someone else's murder? Her sad story begins in Ohio in the 1960s. Melissa Griggs, known as Missy by her family and friends, grew up in a middle-class Midwestern family. Early in Melissa's life, her mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and was very sick for much of Melissa's childhood. She eventually became so ill that she was taken to live in a nursing home in Illinois. Melissa's father left the family and remarried. 
Melissa and her siblings were left to their own devices. When Melissa was 14, she got pregnant. She was sent to live with family friends in Chicago, where she gave birth and gave the baby up for adoption. Melissa was then sent to live with her elderly grandmother, who was unable to provide a stable living situation for a teenager who had already experienced so much trauma. Melissa quickly headed down a path of self-destruction, getting involved in drugs and prostitution. In the 1980s, Melissa got married and gave birth to her second child, but the relationship soon ended in divorce and Melissa walked away from her young son. Over the next decade, Melissa bounced between Illinois, Ohio, Oregon, and Washington. In Seattle, Melissa was arrested on drug charges and received probation, but she absconded on the probation and ended up in jail for several months. But by the mid-90s, Melissa seemed to be getting her life back on track. She told her family that she had gotten sober and was planning to get married. But on Thanksgiving Day in 1995, her family received a devastating phone call. Melissa's body had been found on a Salt Lake City street. Her family was shocked. They hadn't even known that Melissa was in Utah. And they had just spoken to her recently. She had asked them to send money so she and her boyfriend could buy a Thanksgiving turkey. How had she ended up dead? Melissa had apparently been living in Utah for a while, even picking up criminal charges for shoplifting and prostitution during her time there. Court records listed her as transient, showing that she moved around from place to place, including seedy motels and friends' couches. In November of 1995, Melissa was living with an older man in West Valley City who was known for taking in transients. Around 1.30 in the morning on Thanksgiving Day, Melissa asked the man to borrow his car. She said she was going to meet someone who owed her money. At 2.30 that same morning, a man was awakened by his barking dogs. He looked out his front window and saw a car idling on the street outside. Not thinking anything was suspicious, the man went back to bed. When he woke again at 6.45, he noticed that the car was still there. When he went out to investigate, he discovered the body of a woman in the car. The man immediately called 911. When police arrived, they found a bloody scene. The woman was lying face down across the front seats of the small hatchback car. She was nude from the waist down, wearing only a pink sweatshirt. Other pieces of clothing were scattered in the back seat. Blood covered her face. It appeared she had been severely beaten. But she had clearly put up a struggle. Blood was splattered across the front and back seats of the car, and the rearview mirror had been broken off. As investigators processed the scene, they noted that there was a used condom on the floorboard of the car and a condom wrapper on the dashboard. However, neither item had any blood on it. A pack of cigarettes and a lighter were found, as well as a pair of blue rubber gloves and a large jar of change that was undisturbed. The keys to the car were missing. The victim was soon identified as 33-year-old Melissa Griggs. An autopsy revealed that not only had Melissa been beaten, she had been manually strangled until she died. The medical examiner noted that there were fresh track marks on her arms, indicating that she had been actively using drugs, but there was no toxicology report to say whether she had drugs in her system when she died. No drug paraphernalia was found in the car. Investigators began looking into several promising leads. Melissa had supposedly been going to meet a friend who worked as a cab driver. He had allegedly supplied her with heroin in the past. 
They also looked into the man who had found her body on Thanksgiving morning. The neighborhood was a popular spot among sex workers and drug dealers. Detectives even explored the idea that Melissa had picked up someone who then decided to kill her in the moment. Then, as suddenly as it had begun, the investigation stopped. The last report in Melissa's case file was a two-paragraph interview with an unnamed witness on December 5, 1995, just two weeks after her death. Two weeks of investigation, two weeks of solid leads, then nothing. With so much physical evidence and momentum in the case, why did police suddenly stop investigating? For nearly nine years, Melissa's case sat untouched. In August 2004, a detective was assigned to look into a new lead. The police report stated that the individual in question had recently been booked on suspicion of a homicide that was very similar to Melissa's. Who was the individual? The brother-in-law of the man who discovered Melissa's body. This brother-in-law was a known cocaine user and frequenter of sex workers in the Salt Lake City area. He had a history of domestic violence, including an incident where he attempted to strangle his wife. After Melissa's murder, he suddenly stopped visiting the house. Unfortunately, he has moved to southern Utah in the years since, and it's unclear whether he was ever questioned in relation to Melissa's case. The report mentioned that there was DNA evidence in the case that needed to be sent to the state crime lab. We know there was DNA on the used condom found in the car, but according to later reports, there was also DNA found inside Melissa that did not match the DNA found on the condom. Reports indicate that detectives believed Melissa met someone for a sexual encounter, but was later attacked by someone else who beat and strangled her, then sexually assaulted her post-mortem. Because Melissa's purse and keys were missing from the car, her niece believes that whoever assaulted Melissa took her shoot kit, the item she would have needed to inject herself with heroin. Jennifer also believes that the killer knew Melissa. The fact that she was beaten so severely and then manually strangled indicates a very personal attack. Jennifer also has another theory. Over the years, Melissa had been charged with multiple serious felonies, but had never done any real time. At one point, she was charged with amateur recruitment into prostitution, meaning that she was recruiting other girls for sex work. She was also arrested when she got caught driving a stolen vehicle, but the charges were later dropped. In Seattle, she had been charged with manufacturing and possession, but had only received probation. Is it possible that Melissa had been working as a police informant? Why else would she have received such lenient punishments for such serious crimes? Perhaps that's why police stopped investigating her case after such a short time. There are also some interesting connections to Crystal Bislanowicz's case. Jennifer says there is evidence that Melissa and Crystal knew each other and that they lived in the same motel for some time. Also, Melissa often purchased heroin from a cab driver, and one of the original suspects in Crystal's case was a cab driver who was obsessed with her. The cab driver was questioned in Crystal's case, but not in Melissa's. Unfortunately, that is where the similarities end. When Crystal's killer was eventually found, his DNA did not match anything from Melissa's crime scene. As the years pass, Melissa's case gets harder and harder to solve. Many of the people involved in Melissa's life in Utah have since passed away and can no longer be questioned. Jennifer told a local news station, quote, I just feel like somebody has to know something, remember something. I just feel like we're running out of time. 
What really breaks my heart about Melissa's case is how she was treated as expendable in life and even in death. Her remains were never claimed by her family and were left with the medical examiner for decades. She was eventually buried in a potter's field in Utah. Jennifer has been working to get her aunt's remains sent back to Illinois, where she can have a proper burial and a grave marker. Jennifer said, quote, It's kind of a testament as to the way she was always treated and the way she ended up. Sadly, there is still very little movement on Melissa's case. Jennifer continues to advocate for her aunt, but until someone comes forward with more information or the Salt Lake City Police Department decides to dedicate more time and resources to the case, it's likely that Melissa's murder will remain unsolved. If you have any information regarding Melissa's case, please contact the Salt Lake City Police Department at 801-799-4636. All tips are anonymous. Please share Melissa's story on social media. Her case deserves the same attention Crystal's received, and she deserves the same justice. I also encourage you to listen to Jennifer's interviews with local media. Links can be found on bitesizedcrimepod.com. I'm so glad to meet you. I'm very excited to meet you, too. I haven't got much like uh, coverage on the story, so I'm excited when anybody gets a little interested in it. Well, and I was looking back through everything yesterday just to refresh my memory, and I was like, there's literally, there were like three news stories at the time from the only, like from one newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I mean, most of the information that I got from my episode was from you. When I had gotten the police report, I was shocked to find out that they closed the case after two weeks. That is baffling to me. (laughs) Like, I cannot wrap my brain around it, especially when they had so much information. Yeah. When they have, like, so many leads and all that. And um, I've actually gotten, like, some really interesting things have happened. Her murder had been linked to Crystal Belsawanich's. And her murderer actually died in prison not too long ago. And his sister, um, she reached out to me. And she was kind of under the assumption that she thought her brother had done it. But what she gave me was a psychological profile written about why someone thought these murders would be connected, but it also gave an entire profile of the killer. But the thing is, is I have the DNA makeup of the person. So because of the genetic makeup, it it couldn't possibly be him because this person is likely like of Cuban or any indigenous America, plus like a quarter African American with a little bit of Southeast Asian and Caucasian thrown in there. So their ethnicity oh, interesting. is so uncommon that if you found the person, you would know who it was just by their ethnicity. That is so interesting. Yeah, I was, I definitely wanted to talk with you about the, the, the DNA because I mean, I have so many questions. Like I told you in my email, um, her case has just really stuck with me. I was looking back again through all my stuff and I was like, she was literally one of the first cases that I covered. And I only found her because I had covered Crystal's case right. first. And a couple times they were like, oh, and by the way, there was, you know, Melissa over here. And I was like, how is there no information when it happened in about the same time frame? They lived very similar lives. There was a lot of overlap. And it was just so shocking to me. But 
now, you know, I've having done this for a couple of years now, I see it over and over again. And a lot of times when I, I'm, you know, diving deep into a certain case, it leads me to another one. And it's like, oh yeah, don't forget about this random person over here. And they treat them like random people. And I'm like, why can't we get the same coverage for this person as we did for this person? And I'm, I'm sure you've battled with that. It's, it never ceases to surprise me and disappoint me. Like, why can't we give everyone the same amount of coverage? It's not that one person needs less coverage. They all need the same amount. They all need more so that we can actually solve these cases. We can find these people who are perpetrating these crimes. And so, yeah, Melissa's what, and I I know y'all called her Missy and she just, her case just stuck with me. So when I saw your email, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, I know exactly which case. I mean, I can like see it so clearly in my mind because I really do like try to deep dive these as much as possible. And even with hers with like literally three articles, I was so grateful for the information that you put out because otherwise, I mean, there was like nothing about her and it just breaks my heart. So I was hoping that maybe you could maybe tell us like a little bit about your memories of her. Okay. Um, how old were you when when all this happened? I was 12 when she mm-hmm. was murdered. And it actually happened Thanksgiving morning. So it mm-hmm. kind of ruined our dinner that year. But um, I don't remember her in the negative way that other people portrayed her. Like she mm-hmm. was very bubbly. She lit up a room. She was a very beautiful woman. And um, she always had a way with men. She always liked to tell silly jokes. And as I kind of dived into like her life a little bit, I noticed that we were very similar people. And I think that we struggled with the same type of mental illness because she was always very childlike and very fun. And I don't ever remember anything negative, but like she would steal stuff and we would find out later. Like one time she picked us up in a really nice car with a phone in it drove us around and let us call our friends and she had stolen the car off some guy that she dated but I never remembered her like that so in her death when like especially my dad my dad's other sister would vilify her Mm -hmm. I didn't ever remember her like that and I never wanted her to be remembered like that and I think the most heartbreaking thing for me was when I read through the criminal profile the last way she was described was as unremarkable Mm -hmm. and she wasn't like she just was one of those people (sighs) that like she walked in a room and everybody looked at her. She talked and everybody listened. And along the lines, I found some people who said, you know, she was a great person. You know, Mm -hmm. she was a beautiful person. She was very loved even in death all these years later. There are many people whose lives she touched. And I just remember the good things about her, not the way that like the last photo they took of her before her death. That wasn't the person that I remembered. I do remember the Mm -hmm. last time I saw her though, I want to say it was maybe two years before she died and she had came home to our hometown and was with my dad's grandma and she was trying to straighten out. But I remember the track marks in her mm-hmm. arms because at that time yeah. you used heroin, you had to be an intravenous drug user. And I remember her arms were just horrible and she wanted so many times to try to do better. She just couldn't, you know, outrun the lifestyle. And that's so difficult. Like people who don't know someone or or love someone who has, you know, issues with substance abuse, like it's hard to understand, like, why can't they just stop? And, you know, like you said, it's, 
it's next to impossible for so many people. And, and she was kind of living a transient lifestyle at that time, right? Like she didn't really have like a solid home base. She had lived a transient lifestyle pretty much most of her life because my dad came from just like a regular middle-class family. But when Melissa was very young, my grandma got MS. So in her early teens, my grandma was confined to a wheelchair and the kids were responsible for taking care of her. And my grandpa drove a semi, but he was always gone. So she kind of around 13 or 14 kind of just started doing what she wanted. So then when my grandparents ended up, my grandpa left my grandma and she went to a nursing home and the kids were all still very young. I'm going to say Missy was around like 14 at this time. She had gotten pregnant and they sent her Mm -hmm. to a family friend in Chicago and she went to a girl's school and she gave birth to the baby when she was about 15 years old. And um, I think it broke her because they took her and dropped her off with her grandma who was in her 80s at the time. And she could just do what she wanted to. She was a very beautiful girl. So everything, like the world was her oyster. People were wanting her attention, wanting her around, giving her things. So she would always go from place to place to place to place my whole life. I remember that. Like she would just show up in town and then just leave. And that was probably really hard for you as a kid to really understand too. You know, like, why isn't she coming? Why don't I see her more often? And um, and then especially after she passed, I'm sure like hearing, like you said, you didn't remember her that way. You remembered her in the, you know, the happy, bubbly, joyful person. And then to kind of hear other people's perspectives. And I just, I can't even imagine like the kind of trauma that she went to, just trauma upon trauma upon trauma that she went through. Yeah. You know, I mean, honestly, it's not surprising that her life went that direction, you know, after all of those things at such a young age. Um, it's just, it's so hard. It's so hard. Yeah. And I think it was hardest for her because I think it happened at a time when a girl really needed their mom and a girl really yeah. bad and she didn't have either. And I think the whole sad part of it is that I think when she had the baby, I think she just spent her whole life looking for love. And she, she never found it. You know, she, that's what I think she was really on the search for because a lot of times her relationships were with men much older than her, which in a way was convenience, but there was a man that she was with that was older than her that I know she dearly loved him and he loved her, but he was much older than her. So she was always, I think, kind of searching for the love she never got from her dad. Oh, sure. And just that, like you said, that security, that convenience of, at least I know someone you know, who's older can, can support me, can protect me and, you know, probably searching for that kind of security. Yeah, Man. So by the time, you know, what 1995 rolls around, I mean, she's deep in it. I know um, you had said, and even some of the articles had said that on that Thanksgiving morning, she had left the house like super early to go and um, likely seek out more heroin, right? You had mentioned that she was dope sick at the time. She was staying Um, older gentlemen. And they, when you read over the police reports, one of the people has to be wrong because there's a guy who said he had dinner with her mm -hmm. left a restaurant at 1230. But the old man says she left more around one o'clock. And it was because she was dope sick and she was going to, you know, have sex with someone for drugs. And the weird part about it was the man, even when he talked to my family, felt slightly guilty because this was the first time he had ever let her go by herself in his car. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. habit of driving into the area where they prostituted and he would go wait at a bar for her until she was done and then take her so she could leave. Because at this time, I think she had been beaten up by somebody that she had had an issue with. So she was staying with this older gentleman. And that was the first time he had ever let her use the car on her own was that night. 
And he probably thought, well, she'll be right back. Like she, because I believe, was she going to find like a friend? There was just like a cab driver situation. One story says, yeah, there there was a cab driver that she got drugs from. And um, one of two things, I either think that would be Joseph Michael Simpson, because he was an airport shuttle driver at the time. He had a relationship with Crystal. He most likely knew my aunt, but didn't have a personal relationship with her like Crystal, right. because Crystal was younger, more vulnerable. Um, and there was also a man, I can't remember his last name, but his first name was Herb. If you've looked into Crystal's case. Herb Fry? Yeah, Herb Fry. Right? So Herb mm-hmm. Fry was also a taxi cab driver. And the interesting thing about Herb Fry is after all this went down. I looked up Herb Fry. He lives out in like Montana or something and he has no ties to Salt Lake City anymore. So I think Herb oh, wow. had something going on back then because if you look on his Facebook page, it never says he lived there. But if you go on his Facebook page and find his children, it says that they live there. But him and his wife leave that completely off their Facebook. So I'm assuming that he, I'm thinking that Herb was the, the drug dealer. Yeah, that seems to make the most sense, especially if, you know, the guy whose house she was at, he felt like it was not a big deal for her to go on her own. She must have said, I'll just be right back, you know, something like that. But then it wasn't that much longer where, what, like an hour or so that the guy who eventually found her saw her car outside his house, right? Right. Like the dogs woke him up. There was something to that effect. So this timeline is what always struck me as odd. So if you believe what the older gentleman says... Mm-hmm. They were staying in West Valley City, which is maybe a good like 20 minute drive because mm-hmm. I've, I've Googled the addresses of where she was at. So if this man says that she left at one o'clock, this man, the other man puts her at in front of his house around two o'clock in the morning. So that mm-hmm. would have been a very short window. So that's always why I assumed in my mind that it was a setup. But mm-hmm. if we take what the other guy who had dinner with her at this all night diner called D says, he says she mm-hmm. left at 1230. So that puts her in front of this other man's house at 130. But this man's story has never been consistent. He changes it several mm-hmm. times. So the first time the cops come, he says, I only woke up once and then I got up to go to work mm-hmm. and I noticed the car was out there and it was still idling and I checked the car. That's the first story. Well, when the cops come back again, he goes, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, I woke up a second time around three or four in the morning and I heard a car. Then I woke up the final time at 530. So then in the police report, he says that the third time he's questioned, okay, the second time I woke up, I heard a car. I go outside, there's a truck sitting, someone gets out of this truck, walks over to the car, and then runs back to the truck and leaves. Oh, I didn't know that part. I didn't find that out until I found all the police reports. Well, then in the police report, there is a description of said pickup truck, and it is found with two people dead in it in a grocery store parking lot. After the two people are dead in the car, then they shut the case. Really? Yeah. That's so, do we, do we know who those people are? Were they mentioned at all in the police report? In the police report, but Salt Lake City takes everything and blacks out the names. Sure, sure. They were two males were found shot dead in the pickup truck that fit the description of the truck they saw that night with two occupants in it. Now, Joseph Simpson also drove a truck at the time, but through like his DNA and everything, like I said, I don't think he Mm -hmm. killed her. And they said that they have got his DNA. And I know that like his sister kind of, I tried to explain to her that I really don't think that he is the actual person who did Mm -hmm. it because for a long time I was chasing Crystal's boyfriend as the perpetrator. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cause I mean, that's the thing with this case. There's so many potential suspects that it's like, why did they just stop all of a sudden? Um, 
The this man that also, this is an interesting thing that I found out from the police report. The man that found her mm-hmm. called the police back and told them that he thought his brother-in-law killed her because oh. his brother-in-law did coke, had sex with prostitutes, and had tried to strangle the sister-in-law inside that house. That The whole thing about, like, where she was found is just always been so strange to me. Like, you know, at that time, it was kind of a hot spot for, for sex work and things like that. So maybe the guy wasn't, like, super surprised to see a car outside his house. But I also feel like if you kept seeing that same car over and over again and you're trying to sleep and you keep waking up and seeing these weird things, wouldn't you be a little more suspicious? But maybe he was just used to it and didn't want to deal with it. Well, to me, what I always thought was weird about it is if you think about it, this is 1995 and you remember Mm -hmm. growing up, like people were up early in the morning on Thanksgiving because we cooked our turkeys. (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) No one noticed on the street anything suspicious you would have been up getting ready and things like that. So that always struck me as odd too. But if you blow up on Google Maps, this area, there is an alley you can take to a hotel that is no longer there that she would go and it was a hotel where the prostitutes would take their johns. Right. So this, this is, there's an alleyway there that connects those very closely. I know that you've said in the past, and it seems to make sense to me that it seems likely that she was there specifically to meet someone to have sex, to get the drugs. Could that be connected to those guys in the truck? Could they, not again, not necessarily be the killers, but could they have been the John, someone connected that way, then someone else comes along and and kills her like there there has to be more than one person like even just the dna evidence shows that they'd have sex in the car because they did find semen in a condom mm-hmm. um they do know that she ingested drugs there what i thought was weird is and i've had drug addiction in my past someone who's mm-hmm. dope sick she had cocaine in her system but no heroin and i couldn't oh, imagine her like being so sick as the man described and being able to choose to do that over the other. But Crystal Belsawanich also had cocaine in her system at the time. So I think there was a lot of cocaine period going around this area. But what was not known, and I I tell everything that's in the police report, I don't care anymore. Actually, whoever killed her had sex with her also post-mortem and was not the same contributor of DNA to the condom. So I've always thought, what if maybe she was out there after someone left and she had sex with them and then someone came along, moment of opportunity and ambushed her right there? That's extremely likely. I mean, that makes a lot of sense because like you said, it's an area that's pretty frequented by you know, all sorts of people. It's so close to that hotel. Who even knows? And I, you know, when you look at the street, if I remember correctly, the houses are pretty close together too. So, I mean, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for people to be out on the street, even that early in the morning. And so someone, you know, hearing noise outside probably was like, oh, well, it's just people out there talking or having sex or whatever. They may not even have been phased by it at that point. Well, and there's also some speculation, like I have the cold case society in like Utah, they've been looking mm-hmm. into her case and there, there is some belief that maybe she was killed and the car was brought back. Oh. Killed a location because it happened inside a Dodge Colt, which is very similar to like a Chevelle or a Pacer, the little hatchback. It's real small. Yeah. yeah very small car. So the way the, the brutality that took mm-hmm. place in this car, they most likely couldn't have had both doors shut. 
because like they beat her off of the windshield and everything was disturbed. And I don't think it was a robbery thing because even though they took her purse and her keys, there was a very large container of change that was left in there. If you're that desperate to do that, I would think that you would take the change also. Yeah, I I thought about that, especially with the car being so small, you know, like, I mean, I say I'd seen pictures, I've seen a picture, the one picture that there is, and just that car is so tiny. And I mean, it's not like she was a big person by any means, but you put another person in there in that in a front seat in particular with, you know, the the drive shift with the steering wheel. And like, how is that even happening? So now that you say it's possible that they took the car elsewhere, brought it back and left it there, could have maybe even staged the body that way. I mean, that's entirely possible. The body was definitely staged because they had to remove her clothing because Mm -hmm. she urinated on herself during the station and then her pants were taken off and removed. So when she was found, she had nothing on but a sweatshirt and what I thought was very weird. And all her clothes were there except for her socks, which is why I think maybe the body was moved because why would everything be there except her socks. It was November. It was Utah. It was cold. Jacket and a sweatshirt on. And she had a bad foot. So no one with a bad foot is not going to wear socks, especially in the worst. So I always thought that was another thing that made me think that. But also then I thought, hey, Crystal Belsawanish's socks were ritualistically folded. Is there a potential that someone took socks? So I mean, I spent like four four days searching for any rapes where the socks were taken because normally most people escalate from rape into homicide, but. Well, and we know she was strangled, which, you know, anyone who has consumed any kind of true crime, like, you know, that's super personal for that level of brutality. Number one, for her to be so badly beaten and then to be manually strangled is just so, so personal. And you really have to have some kind of internal rage for that. Right. And so, yeah, now that you're saying that's possible that she was staged, that everything was moved, it would make sense. Like maybe they accidentally left the socks behind at, you know, the other scene, wherever that may have been. Right. And one thing that always really stuck with me about the crime scene too or is that vulgar. I thought that after they had sex with her, they maybe pulled out and used the socks. That's a very good point. They left they left a little bit inside but didn't realize it and they pulled out and I always thought that maybe they used the socks and took them with them. Maybe even to cover up evidence as you know, not very well, but maybe that right. was their intention. Which also makes me think like like you said, they didn't take the change, they didn't take that. They took whatever drug paraphernalia may have been there. They took her keys and her, her purse. purse. They took her purse. They took her car keys. Like in my thinking, they may have tried to take those to, you know, they're taking her ID. So nobody really knows who she is right away. It's going to delay the investigation. They're taking things that they might want. Like, Hey, I want this, um, this kit, this drug kit. And, but they're leaving behind other things like the cigarettes. They're leaving behind right. the change, the condom. Like, it's just so weird. They left a lighter. And I was thinking, everybody I know that's like a crummy person feeling is definitely going to take cigarettes and a lighter. Of course. And yeah, they didn't even take that. That's what I thought. That's why I thought maybe she was at somewhere else and then moved again because yeah. Yeah. they just didn't put her, they took the keys with them and just didn't take her purse back. But all her, she was, she was disrobed in the car and all her clothes were found in the back seat, not in the front seat. Yeah. That is also very weird to me. And she was not a petite woman. She was like five, seven. Mm. So she was, you know. That's, you know, a little bit tall for a woman. So she wasn't small either. And I know that when I read the coroner's report, when they strangled her, they broke 
all three of the bones in her throat. So that amount of force, we're dealing with someone who is either A, very angry or mm-hmm. definitely intensely very strong, but they had tried to beat her in the head first around the car. And the profiler said possibly maybe they got upset and decided to strangle her instead. And I said, you know what? I don't believe that because everything I've done since I've gotten into this and looked into other cases, mm-hmm. strangulation is mostly done in crimes of passion. Yeah. So it is where the people have a very intimate relationship with each other when that's, you know, when that happens. Yeah, I think that's really the key. Like it had to have been someone who knew her or it, you know, maybe not like a close personal friend or anything, but there was some connection there. I don't think that this was a stranger. I think somebody came across her maybe who knew her or who was following her or something like that. And this is so incredibly personal and so brutal. Yeah. And I mean, the way she was posed to humiliate her, yeah. like it was, it was done to humiliate her. Like Crystal Belsawanich was posed in a, in, in a nice way. Like they put her to where like, you couldn't even see her areas or anything like mm-hmm. that. I mean, when they put my aunt spread Eagle over a gear shift. So I personally think that there was some personal type of thing in, in that, you know, even though I've learned that necrophilia is very uncommon. Yeah. So that's what also led me to believe like this person I feel has had to have done something like that again, because that is of a very depraved mind. And Mm -hmm. we think the media hypes stuff up so bad that yes, some of your most prolific serial killers did engage in necrophilia, but that's because they were like serial killers with dozens of victims. Mm -hmm. So your average person on the street is not going to have sex with a dead body. So I firmly believe this person has other, other victims out there because my aunt at first, they thought that it was the Green River Killer. Oh, really? Yeah. They thought she was a victim of the Green River Killer. And then that, of course, through DNA was dismissed. And, you know, the thing about the Joseph Michael Simpson, like, there's just too many things that connect, though, with the murders that I personally feel that Joseph Michael Simpson didn't act alone. And the reason Mm -hmm. that I believe that is because he never professed his innocence, but he never said his guilt. He was a very tight-lipped individual. Um, He never said he didn't kill Crystal. But the one thing that was very odd about Crystal's case is the bloody fingerprint that was on her face. And they Mm -hmm. just, they, his defense never brought it up. They just wrote it off as being that the cop did it. There is not a cop worth his weight in gold that is going to touch that girl's body with blood on his hands or without gloves on his hands and mess up a scene like that. There's no way. So I personally think that Joseph Michael Simpson was framed or Mm. didn't work alone. I don't think he was alone in what he did. There were five contributors of DNA under my aunt's fingernails. Mm -hmm. And there was a condom with semen in it, plus whoever had sex with her after she died. I don't think it's all a coincidence and what I find really odd is that if you read through articles on Crystal Belsawanich's murder, there is an article, I found two of them, where they say that when her boyfriend reported her missing, he was worried because my aunt had just been killed. Right. I had a friend reach out to Chris Barquette. And you know what he told my friend? I didn't know she was dead. But you were at Joseph Mike Simpson's trial. You had talked to his attorneys. And the prosecution gave... 
The theory was that the same person killed these two women. It is in this profile. The prosecution gave it to his sister. You went to that trial and you don't remember that my aunt's dead. Now, I know they didn't bring my mm. aunt up in that trial, but I know that when you talk to either side of them, that that profile and the coincidence had to be there because they wanted to ask you about that. And he will tell you, he said, I didn't even know she was dead because the thing about him was I always thought he was white. I've been chasing a ghost for years. Turns out he's black and older than both of them. Oh, interesting. What I thought was weird is he never, never did a single story, never talked to anybody. I thought he was a minor, the way mm-hmm. that he was protected through all these things you read. His last name is never mentioned in any article. Right. It's only his first name. They don't mention his age. They don't mention anything about it. Do you know that he was almost twice Crystal's age? Oh, really? Yes. He was an older black gentleman. And the thing that I always thought was weird is then when I get this DNA, this person is a mixture of possibly Cuban and all that. And all that. And he has a French last name. That's really interesting. Been my number one suspect since day one. Have they been able to get any DNA samples from him at all? Do you know? I've been told if I can find him for them, let him know. We've got one person running this whole show out there. No, they've never asked him for DNA. I've literally had to. I've been chasing a ghost for maybe like seven years until I got all that information. I go, oh, so he is black. He's older. His Because he went to the trial. He was at Joseph Michael Simpson's trial. And how I got his name was from Joseph Michael Simpson's sister. That's so interesting. there was a detective that worked her case. He was the second one to be on it after I got started. His name was Chris Cotradimus. And he had told me, when we find Crystal's killer, we're going to find your aunt's killer. But they couldn't if they were working together. Well, and because that was the big thing is at first they were like, are they connected? Are they connected? But then the DNA didn't match for both cases. But if, like you're saying, if there's more than one, which, I mean, I definitely believe there's more than one in Melissa's case – that's a game changer. Well, and I, it, it hurt my feelings because, like, I really wanted to write to him before he died. And then I mm-hmm. tell his sister, I go, I don't think your brother acted alone. I go, I'm not saying that he's innocent. And she's adamant that, you know, that he didn't. Mm-hmm. But what about this bloody fingerprint? Why was it never brought up? It's talked about. It's not a secret. So if he didn't work alone, why was it not presented as a plausible defense by your evidence? I, from what I understand, they didn't even analyze it. They just chopped it up to the cop. Yeah, that really surprises me. Like, that is not, like you said, no cop worth his salt is going to do that. But also, like, these defense attorneys, what are they doing? Like, you have evidence that there could possibly be someone else there. Like, you're not even going to test it. You're not even going to push for that. Well, and they took Crystal's purse. They took her jacket. They took her shoes. They left her socks. And then the only thing they took for, and I just thought this is weird. The only thing Melissa didn't have was her socks. The only thing Crystal had was her socks. Yeah, that it's is weird. It's almost like someone killed her first and then tried to redo it. It's almost like what I felt because Crystal was taken into another county. Right. Yes. That was a big issue. Now, okay, this might be like tinfoil hat conspiracy, but are we 100% sure that those are Crystal's socks? No. See, that's the thing. They never tested them. And they said Crystal was really funny about her socks. That she, like, mm. her boyfriend said that there was, like, a certain way she took off her socks or anything. But it's just, yeah, that's what I was thought was weird. Because then Crystal's shoes got left on the side of the road. And then someone put out flowers. So it's almost like, did we have somebody that was gearing up to start practicing? And Joseph Michael Simpson ends up getting the brunt of this because he, he I almost feel like he was framed. Like, I know that sounds bad. I almost. I almost feel like he's framed. I mean, it's this DNA technology that we're still not relying on. Who else has solved a murder using this? Do you know what I mean? 
Right. And, you know, when I was researching the case, especially, that was the first time I'd ever heard of that. Um, I mean, I know it's it's still being used, but they really hung everything on that specific technology, you know, getting the DNA from the rock, which great. I mean, I'm so glad that we have more tools, but what is what other evidence is there? You know, like they really put all their eggs in that basket. And it's like they were both last seen at the same store that on the nights they both disappeared. Yeah. And I was told by a detective that my aunt and Crystal actually shared a hotel room for a brief moment. So my thought was always, okay, Chris Barquette got mad at my aunt because my aunt was older and trying to tell Crystal, you don't need this pimp over here. You need to come on with me and we can make our own money. Maybe he thought she was a bad influence on her Mm -hmm. or something like that. And then he got angry and killed my aunt. And then Crystal, I always felt like Crystal got killed because she knew what happened to my aunt. That's extremely likely. I always 100% in my heart thought that they killed that little girl because she knew something or saw something. And they were afraid that she was going to tell and they wanted to shut her up. Well, and that's kind of what makes me wonder, like you said, if there is some sort of setup, some sort of framing situation, if, you know, there was a duo or trio of people who are trying to make this happen. I I mean, just the whole thing is just so strange. Like between Crystal's case and Melissa's case, there's just too much overlap for them to be completely separate. There has to be something there. That's what I've always thought because it's just always struck me as really odd. Like, and here's the thing, they both came from Washington State. And then I thought my aunt probably connected her very well because Crystal also had a baby as a teenager that she gave up for adoption. Right. So my aunt clearly was a really great manipulator. I mean, she was, and Crystal was, she was really young. She was good looking. She was, I heard she was pretty good at what she did. She knew how to work the street. So of course my aunt would want to pull her away from this guy. Right. So I just, I always felt that the two had, had to be connected. There's too many coincidences for there not to be something. And what was really weird about Melissa's murder is in the evidence, when they're logging it in, there's a pair of blue rubber gloves taken into evidence. Yes. Those are so weird. How have they not made anything out of that? Disappear. And then when I asked why they disappeared, they said, well, they probably belong to the EMTs. Okay. I have a cousin that's an EMT. I said, Hey, let me ask you a question. How often do you leave gloves? In a car that's getting ready to be, she goes, I don't even leave gloves when I go to a normal scene where I'm helping someone. She goes, we're, and I said, especially at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Aren't you just going to leave them on? The bloody fingerprint on Crystal, you're really going to tell me in Mormon, Utah, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, Mm -hmm. that a cop really touched a body with no gloves on. That's not true. And to me, like, I've never, it will never wrap my brain around how they can treat a case like crime scene investigators specifically and just be like, well, it's probably just a regular death scene. Can we not just treat everything like a homicide and then work backwards from there? Wouldn't that make more sense? He literally goes, I was told to treat it as a routine scene. And I was like, what is about pulling up and a normal, and someone laying there naked with blood coming out of their nose, dead spread over a gear shift. I was like, there's nothing normal about that. But they also had said that there had been a girl they found dead in the bushes. Before me. Yeah, there was a girl who was found dead overdosed in the bushes. When? Not that I've just heard the story and they said it happened not too long before Missy died. So the cops in their mind probably just thought, oh, another overdose on the block. Yeah. Well, and you know, I'm sure you've run across this too, but that is something we see all the time is you have someone who lives a quote high risk lifestyle. 
And they're just treated like, oh, well, there's another one, like you said, you know, treated like it was just an overdose or whatever. Oh, well, they drank themselves to death or whatever the excuse is. So they don't, it's almost like they're giving themselves an excuse not to care, not to investigate. That's again, where it it breaks down for me because you're giving so much attention to Crystal in her investigation, but you're not giving the same care to Melissa or to the girl in the bushes who, you know, we've never heard of and things like that. Like, why can't we give the equal amount of care to every victim? Why are we just saying, oh, well, it was just a routine death. Here's another, you know, sex worker who's shot up heroin and she's dead. Oh, well, like that's the mentality that they have. And even still today, I mean, that was 1995. We're still seeing that in 2023. I can't understand it. I think with Crystal, a lot of it was location, 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 mm-hmm. where she was killed. And if you've ever watched the sheriff that found her body, he's a he's a showman. Oh, yeah. He is a showman. So when he was like, oh, and as soon as they found out she was that other girl and she was really this teenager, he just ran with it. Yeah. And she, instead of being painted as a prostitute like all these other girls – it was one of those little girl lost things. Oh, we should feel so bad for her. But that was a political move on the part of the sheriff to monopolize on her murder. And what I, here's some real tinfoil hat stuff. <laughs> the Salt Lake City Police Department is notorious for closing out cases. If you go back and look, they got a new mayor in like 2007, 2010. That made them open up all these old cases because what they were being used for is the Salt Lake City PD was a training department with very unprepared officers and they would just throw them in there for them to learn. And they were shutting all these cases so that they could keep getting up. Like, I don't know, shutting them. So the numbers went up or whatever. And then they got a new mayor and she went off and made them open it all back up. Now at that time they had several detectives on it, but now as you see, it's not at the forefront of their mind. They have one, one and a metropolitan area like Salt Lake city. I know right now, I have a list of 28 murders that all fit the same MO that have happened from 84 up until I think 2018 that are still unsolved. Wow. Like there's a murder of a little girl that happened a couple years after Melissa. She was five years old. She Mm -hmm. was stolen out of her bedroom and sexually assaulted and found in a creek. And that got nowhere near the coverage that Crystal does. There's also a young lady named Ann Rich that I always felt her murder was connected to Melissa's. She was killed on Memorial Day. And I want to say, I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it was 1998. And she was found like in an alleyway, strangled, naked. She was sodomized. And they just say that whoever killed her, they're pretty sure he did it and he's dead now. So her case is quote unquote solved, but it's not. And the sad part about her is like when you start looking on like the Utah cold cases, it's mostly women who right. are probably not living the best lifestyle, weren't of any means. And a majority of it is is women that fell victim to, you know, what we know now with sex trafficking. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember being surprised that Melissa's picture was even on their cold case thing because because of the lack of care that they gave to her case. And I was like, oh, at least they actually listed her on. I mean, there's not really much information, of course, but I was like, well, at least they've given her that, you know, put her picture. I think that's probably due to some probably new federal regulations. 
about it, the sad part is, it's like, even as I started getting into, you know, this whole, you know, scene with people, I was unaware of how many people have unsolved murders in their family. Like how people, this is affecting like nationwide, the families that it hurts. And, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just the lack of the police caring for people from certain demographics. Like it has to stop. But as a society, we do the same thing. It's really hard to think that we give a value to a life depending on how someone lives it. And, you know, my aunt. That's exactly right. You know, she did not deserve to die the way that she did, no matter what mistakes she made in her life. No one had the right to do that and continue to go on about their life. It's been almost 28 years. And this person has went on with their life. And that's just so heartbreaking because you just know that they're out there living the life that Melissa didn't get to live. And again, like you said, no matter how she was living her life, she deserved to get to live it. Right. She didn't deserve to have it taken away and in such a horrible manner too. Now, let me ask you this. I know that there's kind of a theory uh, that she may have been a police informant. Do you still believe that? Do you still think that's an element there? A hundred percent, because that's my theory. Reason being is that I have started talking to them and I said, okay, when was my aunt in jail in Washington? And they go, what do you mean? I go, my aunt was in jail in Washington because she wrote me letters, me and my dad. And she called and I remembered because one time she had, like, they would have other prisoners draw pictures and she color them. And I remember having one with like a huge purple heart in the corner. Yeah. Went on for a couple months. There's no record of her being incarcerated there. The only record, there is a record that she was on probation and then she absconded and then came back. And then at the time of her death, Melissa had just been charged. She had been picked up and arrested and they let her back out, but it was for professional recruitment. Now, professional recruitment is not a charge that your average everyday prostitute gets. Right. And that means that she was trying to get girls to work off for a pimp or that she was possibly participating in one of like the dating service things they used to do back then and get girls to work for people because she also had ties to a very high ranking member of the Crip Gang, I believe. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, that's all in the police report, too, that they crossed out his name, but he was involved with the gang. Hmm. And apparently whatever guy she was working for, there she tended to be the bottom bitch when she worked for someone because she was very smart. And up until the point that she died, she was a very gorgeous woman. Like, she was right, yeah. gorgeous. She had a great body, great smile always. And um, she tended to be, she had a very good way with men. So anytime. There was a man in a circle that she was in that had some kind of power influence. She would want to get right up under him. So I think, you know, it's possible that she told on someone. Also, another thing that I thought could have pissed somebody off is she was HIV positive when she died. So possibly someone could have found that out that had been sharing her and gotten very angry. Also, she was in only in major cities, Portland. I know that she was in Portland several times, but all there is is like one, like a jaywalking ticket. There's no record of her ever living in Portland. She did live in Seattle off and on. There's no record of her living there. They claim to have no record of her, her time in jail. And then this charge here, nobody will talk about it. And I was just thinking, how did she get let out onto the streets with no bond on a charge like that? That's a pretty serious one. Right. So how did she get out? She didn't bond out. You just let her go. So maybe you let her go to get information on somebody. Yeah. And I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, that's how that's how law enforcement gets a lot of their information is through people who are, quote unquote, out on the streets living that life because it's 
probably easier for them to do that than to have, you know, a cop go undercover or whatever. Well, yeah, let me just get this person over here to give me the information. I'll, I'll wipe that charge. You know, I, I, I won't make them go to jail for this thing. And it could be that maybe she, like you said, told on the wrong person. It does make me wonder, it does bring me back to Crystal's boyfriend. Right. Again, like I just can't let go of the fact that they were so interconnected. Although, you know, originally they were like, oh, they didn't know each other at all. But there is evidence that they did, that they had some kind of connection. Maybe even, I mean, again, just putting it all together, maybe even Melissa recruited Crystal. I don't know. I mean, again, that could be yeah. foil hat, but there's just too many coincidences there's for me. way too many coincidences for me also. And then... I've always smelled something fishy in the police department here. And that the climate and the time in, in Salt Lake City, there was a lot of backlash from the traditional community of these people moving into their area and doing their drugs and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's a really good point. And like you said, at the height of the AIDS epidemic, too, like there was just so much going on and perhaps, you know, wanting to, quote unquote, clean up their city. There's just so much in this case. And again, going back to the idea of they literally just stopped investigating. Yeah. They had so many potential suspects, right? You got the the cab driver. You've got the guy who she was living with, who, I mean, probably, again, didn't have anything to do with it. But the guy who found her, his brother-in-law, like, you know, Crystal's boyfriend. There's so many options. There was a guy who came into the bar and said that he paid somebody to kill her. There was another guy that she was staying at a hotel with that was looking for her. Yeah, there were multiple men. And the weirdest part about it is there is only one person's name that they let me read. And it was a man that she was staying with an older man named Buford. Now, why would they let me have Buford's name and no one else? And what's really weird Mm. is I asked Joseph Michael Simpson's sister, I go, where did you get the criminal profile? She goes, at the end of the the trial, the prosecution gave it to me. Interesting. Why? That is really weird. She has no right to any of that information. That stuff is usually not public record. Like, yeah, you usually have to like FOIA request yeah, that kind of stuff. And the prosecution to give it to her. That's why I think something something in the milk is not clean with this whole thing. There's, a, I think her murder is a way bigger. There's something way bigger going on here hmm. than because like when I called the detective, I go, so what's your feelings on my aunt and Crystal Bell Swan? And she was like, I didn't even know the two of them were connected. You're literally telling me you didn't read the case file. It's your job. Right. And, and know that until they got the DNA, they thought that both like the same person killed them. It's just really like something, something really fishy. Yeah. I, mm. <laughs> I have so many, so many thoughts, so many tinfoil thoughts. The weird thing about Joseph Michael Simpson is he was never a suspect. It was a cold hit on DNA. He was never a suspect. Yeah. And that, it was always so fascinating to me. And he had been living in Florida for multiple years and going back to the state of Utah. And here's a really funny thing. His dad still owned the same truck when they arrested him. Why didn't you go to his dad's house and look through that truck? Yeah. So it's just like, he was never even a suspect. I mean, I just can't get past the fact that they think, okay, well, we've got this guy, got him in jail, we've arrested him, we've done all these things, and yet they still didn't really do, like, the basic investigation. Yeah. Like, they relied entirely on the rock DNA, which... Great. But I mean, and again, like you said, I'm not saying he's innocent by any means, right. but there has to be more. There has to be more in play there in that case. 
And I want to say, you know, maybe it was just the time, you know, it was the 90s, maybe, you know, we were still kind of in the infancy of a lot of this technology. But like, we had DNA, we knew about DNA, we're getting DNA from rocks, but you can't get a match from the condom or from the, the bloody fingerprint or all of these things. You can't do that part. We can get DNA from a rock, but we can't do the other basic things that we've been doing for years. Right. So that's, again, that speaks to the possibility of her being an informant, why they had all of this momentum. And then all of a sudden, nope, done, case closed, cold case. We're going to leave it. We're going to put it on the shelf. Yeah. There there has to be something there. And I'm not like a real conspiracy theorist. I mean, I am a little bit, but not too much. Yeah. But this kind of thing, like, again, too many coincidences. Right. There is something there. And kudos to you for trying to put all these pieces together because clearly they're not they're not dealing with it. At least you're sitting here saying, I have all these pieces. We're putting them together. I mean, I'm just impressed at how many people you've been able to track down, how much momentum you've been able to keep with this case, even, you know, almost 30 years later. That's a lot of work for And I didn't get started until 2010. So it's only been, yeah. That's crazy. But it's like COVID helped a lot. And then I did a podcast called Shiny Things and I became friends with Mm -hmm. one of the hosts named Kim and she's helped a lot. And then my childhood best friend helped me hunt down a lot of these people and she still does the work. But I've had a lot of really nice people look at the case file, help me. There's been times that I've been overwhelmed and had to pull away because I think the hardest part for me was like when she died as kids kids were told, okay, somebody, she was in a car and somebody came up from behind her and they choked her and died and she didn't see it coming. Well, to find out, no, she was brutally strangled to death and she fought for her life. Like they told me whoever walked away from this situation, they walked away with some bruises or something because she fought really hard for her life. They had to have. Yeah. And again, like if they had interviewed all of these people, like right away, that's basic stuff. Looking for scratches, looking for bruises. Mm -hmm. Was there anything about that in the police reports that you were able to find? No. And I just thought, you know, because my old ploy has always been, you know, this person most likely went to Thanksgiving dinner somewhere that day. Yeah. They literally sat down and because Mm. whoever did this was going to maintain normalcy. I don't care what you say. And they probably went and had Thanksgiving dinner like it was nothing with all these marks and bruises on them. And it's like someone has to know something. They just don't want to say anything. Because even like back in 2007, they were interviewing the children of people that were around that time. Like Chris Cotrodemus really got into the case. And then he just went away from the police department. And, you know, it's really weird. Like he won't talk to us. We have tried to get a hold of him. He won't talk about it. Do you feel like maybe he was told he couldn't talk about it? Because a lot of times when cops leave or retire, like they don't, they don't have that confidentiality as much anymore. Like they feel like they can talk I about it. I think that something happened that disheartened him about the police department mm. through, through the course of this case, because he was one of those detectives that was calling me. He was wanting to have me go call my family and ask them what I could remember trying to find her son who I later did find about two years ago I did reunite with her younger son um so he really tried yeah and I was able to reunite him with his brother so that was like that's nice it came full circle so that was that was a really good moment and I just I don't know it's been really it's been a really weird journey Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, you have really been going nonstop with this. But again, just major props to you because, you know, I do this on like a tiny scale, you know, just trying to bring awareness to cases and you have been neck deep in it for years and years and years. And I mean, I'm sure that takes a toll on you emotionally too, just having to keep putting yourself into this mode of almost reliving these aspects of her, of her death. 
I mean, that's gotta be so hard. That I think is the hardest part because you'll put it away for a little while and then you'll get it out and you'll read the police report and it's like you think about it all again. And what was what was really hard for me was the criminal profile. Like I said, when she was Yeah. When they go down and they describe her and it's just unremarkable. And then they describe Crystal Belsawanich as beautiful. And then it makes you think at that time in her life as a prostitute, your value has declined rapidly. I mean, you're 33, you're not in your prime anymore. And just to think of how like beaten down she must have been, I think mm-hmm. is what hurts me. I mean, she was HIV positive in 1995. That's a death sentence in itself. And yeah. to think that like, she still fought though. She still she fought. Did. She still, that's what I think hurts. If she hadn't put up a fight, I'd have been like, okay. But I think for me, she fought, She there was still hope in her. And what what could have happened if they didn't take her life? What what could have she been? Like, I've lived seven years longer than she ever got a chance to. And it's just, watch my oldest kid become an adult. And I'm starting to think about, I'm going to get to be a grandma. And it's like, she never got that. You know, she never got to actually sit back and enjoy life. It's just, that's a very hard thing. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. And again, like we said earlier, you know, she deserved to live that life however she chose to live it. You know, you never know. She may have been able to get clean. She may have been able to, you know, reunite with family members and all of those things. And that was just ripped away from her. And, you know, and from and from her family as well, from her siblings, from you. You know, you have so many wonderful memories of her. And who knows what that could have been like as as you grew and just really maybe even being able to have like an adult relationship with her could have been so powerful. And and that's always just what sticks with me about these cases too. It's like these people were just ripped away from everything. And you're not just taking the life of, of the victim. You're taking lives from their families. Like you're, you're changing everything. And again, just to imagine that whoever this person is or persons just out there living their life, going to Thanksgiving dinner. And I mean, and who knows, maybe there may even be other victims of this person. I think that this person's killed again with a level of depravity. I couldn't imagine them not feeling that desire to do it again. And I think for me, I almost feel like I have like a time, like a timer ticking because I would like to solve it before my dad passes away because I didn't touch this case while my grandfather was alive. My grandfather, that's why I didn't start. He was very ashamed of her. So once he passed away, it was, it was open season. Like I could just go ahead and I could talk about it. But for my dad and his brother, that was their baby sister. They tried several times. Her brothers would try to bring her, let her live with us. And they they wanted to help her. And I think I remember like, I guess I have a lot of guilt about stuff I shouldn't have. But her younger son, they brought him to try to get him to live with us. My dad wanted him to. And I was mean to him all summer so he couldn't stay. And then he went away. His dad died of cirrhosis and he ended up in foster oh, care. Gosh. So when I finally found him, I just... It was so good to tell him that we do love you. Been going around your whole life like people don't love you. We've loved you. We've looked for you. We've. It took me, geez, almost like 10 years to find him. Like we searched for you. We looked for you. We wanted you in our lives. And that was maybe too little too late, but better than never at all. I'm really glad you're able to have that. Yeah. And it's so funny the way she was with men. You know, the man that raised him as his father was never his father. He was Kenny Griggs. He was married to my aunt and he loved her so much that she ran away and left the little boy and he raised him like he was his own because he hoped he loved her so much and wanted her to come back. That's and I, really it was beautiful. Yeah, it was hard though when um, we finally talked. He wanted to know ev- everything that happened to his mother. Yeah, and it was just like a one a one time talk. 
But he remembered his, his, he loved his mom, you know, they, of course, when she was around, she tried, she loved on him. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's hard to think that like, I didn't want to be the one to tell him, you know, all those things, but it's been, it's been emotionally like a very, it's a very hard journey for people to take. And I feel like the closure would put so many things at peace and, and my family, you know? Yeah, I can't I mean I can't even imagine just that constant seeking of just one more step, just one more answer, just one more question that we can figure out. Do you do you feel like the goalposts are always moving? You know, like you're just kind of like chasing something that's just running away from you? Well, you know, and and about from 2010 to 2015, it was really hard then because they were actually trying they were going all over the United States and they had actually gotten, they had went to a couple different States to get DNA off people who they thought had. Oh, wow. So that's why I said it was just really weird. They were really ramped up about it. Then Chris quits and they're done. But, um, that was hard because you would be like, Oh, they're going to go here. And then they call not a match. And I think you get your hopes up. Yeah. People are so into this thing where all oh, they got CODIS and it's like, no one understands. No, CODIS is this huge data bank and you got to bank yeah. on that hit. You know what I mean? It's like CSI has ruined us all. <laughs> it really has. It really yes. It doesn't happen that fast. Like waiting for results, that stuff takes like weeks, you know, it takes a while. I actually just did a case where it took two years two years for the DNA to come back from the FBI, Mm -hmm. not even just regular police department. The FBI was so backlogged that it took two years to get the evidence back. And like, that just blows my mind. So I can imagine even like some of these small towns or even something like Salt Lake City where they're decent size, but it's not like they have unlimited resources. And we just think, oh, you know, you pop it in the computer and there it is. You have everything right there. (laughs) And that's really not how it works at all. No, not at all. It's just, it's, I feel sorry for anybody that has to go through this. I mean, Mm -hmm. if it's happened in the last 10 years, I maybe feel a little better for them, but I've come across so many people with cases even older than mine that have no answers. Like when I say mommy kid's cousin, this happened in 1978. And then there was a girl that was killed around the same time that was 15 in the same neighborhood. And neither of those families have had answer all this time. They've just been wanting to know what happened to their child. And it's just, it's really sad. That would just be absolutely devastating. I would be so angry that they were not taking that case seriously. And I think like just myself as like a third party unrelated person, how angry some of these cases make me, I can't even imagine living oh, it. If you want to get really mad, you need to look up the Monica Walker murder Ooh. from Dayton, Ohio. Nobody's ever done a story. I will, that for sure. Will, that murder will make you so angry because literally like if you... I'm going to let you just read it. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Listen, I have like the longest list of cases that I want to investigate and I just keep finding more and I'm never going to catch up. I have probably, I'm almost at a hundred episodes and I probably have a good 300 on my list that I haven't even touched yet. There's just so many. And, you know, and I, I of course always want to take them so seriously. And something that's so frustrating though is 
when I find one that I'm like, this is such an interesting case and there's zero information. And I never want to make stuff up. I never want to exaggerate or anything like that. Like I really want to do the research. And I'm like, how is there literally nothing about this person or about this case? It just makes me so angry. When there are cases that have happened, like what I learned when I started studying stuff, go to the local town that it happened in and run through Mm -hmm. their newspaper logs. And so that's how I found all the information on Monica Walker. Like you can't find much. I just hit their paper and started typing in her name, defendant's name, all these things. And I was able to pull up like 38 articles about it. So a lot of times do that and it'll help you find stuff. I have a newspapers.com subscription. Well worth it. I mean, it's expensive, but it's worth it because I mean, I've covered some cases where you can't even find internet articles. You have to go deep into the newspaper archives and- um, you know, I'm like trying to read the grainy text. Like I've got to be able to see what it says. But, you know, if I can find that, if I can find like a police report or court documents are gold, if I can find court oh, documents, because yeah. they put everything out like so clearly, like there's no embellishment. It's just like, here's what happened. I mean, they can be kind of dry. There was one case I want to say I read maybe like it was like 130 pages and it was so much, but I was like, I am invested in this. I went through every single thing. And again, like, I mean, not to be glib about it, but it just, it sucks me in because I want to know what happened. I want even the cases that are solved. Like, I want to know every detail, the cases that aren't, I'm like, how have we not solved this yet? And so many cases that I've come across I've like, I've never heard of this before. Like, it's not even on the radar. Yeah, I like to know how they solved them too. A lot of people that I've met that have like passions for, you know, true mm-hmm. crime, they're very empathic people who are very caring. So I think what makes us so fascinated is like, I could never imagine a situation where mm-hmm. I would take the life of another person. So right. I think because I care so much about like other humans unintentionally that I think I'll, most of the people I have met are very caring, kind hearted people. And I think our morbid curiosity was like, we could never do that. So right. we're fascinated exactly. by people that can. Yeah. It, it It's like a puzzle in a way, you know, like, well, if I can just figure out why they did this, then this thing will make more sense. And in a weird way, it'll make me feel more quote unquote normal or make me feel more safe. You know, like, well, if I can figure out why this person murdered this person, then I will not get murdered because (laughs) I'll know to avoid that, which is insane, of course. But like, that's how our brains work, especially as women. Like we're always on the lookout, like someone's out to out to kill me. Like I get it. And so like, just, it almost gives you like a sense of control. Yeah. Like if I can figure out why this happened, then I can control what happens to me, which again, nonsense, but that's what happened. Yeah. Or what to avoid. Oh my gosh. I I could literally talk to you for hours, but I know you probably have things to do. My dogs are like, I can hear them sniffing at the door. (laughs) I guess before we actually hang out, like, is, is there anything I could do to help you as far as like the case or whatever? Well, what Um, I'm getting ready to do is I'm going to get ready to put all the files I have like to where I can email them to people. And if like your time, if you just want to look through everything, fresh eyes always help. I've been on it for so long. Someone else looking at these things. So are you still, you're still doing the Facebook page too? Yeah. I'm going to be more active on it. I haven't really done anything with it in like a year. So I think we're going to go in and rebrand and get, get back up. Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. It's anniversary. All right. Well, I can definitely, I can definitely promote that for oh, sure. Yeah, for definitely. sure. But, you know, if you ever come across anything or if you're like, hey, can you share this? Can you send it? Just let me know. I'm happy to do it. No problem. For sure. 
It was really great meeting you. Yeah, you too. I had, as, for as, as sad of a subject, I really enjoyed talking to well, you. Well, I think you're my kind of people because our humor is very similar. Yes, exactly. So, exactly. first time someone hasn't looked at me with like, what do you say? Oh. <laughs> you have to be able to laugh or else you would just constantly be in a hole. Yeah, know? definitely humor and everything. Exactly. Uh, okay. Well, again, thank you so much. I'm going to let you go. All right. Well, it was good talking to you. I'll hear from you soon. Thank you for listening to Bite Sized Crime. This episode was written, researched, and edited by me, Joy Scaglione. Theme music is by Arts Guitars. For episode transcripts, pictures, and sources, please visit bitesizedcrimepod.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at BiteSizedCrimePod. If you have a suggestion for a case I should cover, please email me at BiteSizedCrimePod at gmail.com. And be sure to subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Podcast Network.